Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Bond by Numbers. It is January. No, is it? Yes, it's January, and it's time for three <laughs> non. It's time for three non Bonds. It's our second <laughs> of three films. This one, Double O Chapman is bringing to us. So let's bring him straight in. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I am joined by my other Double O agents, my brothers in Bond across the pond, to help with this adventure. Joshua Taylor and Jeffrey Chapman. Hello. Hello. Uh, so today we're uh, going to be looking at the Ipcris file, which uh, is one of the non-bonds. Um, and, uh, it's kind of the, it, it, in many circles, it's been labeled as the uh, sort of anti-bond. Uh, and watching it, that tracks pretty hmm. pretty well. Yeah. Um, I guess it's the first role of like a main lead actor role, but this is the one that really sort of, uh, projected well, him into stardom kind of thing, and then and then Elfie, I guess, would be the probably yeah, exactly the, the one, yeah, because, uh, because apparently uh, I was watching a documentary uh, interview with him saying that they were showing the uh, the producer um, like uh, secret shots of Ipcris file, and that's how we got Alfie. Cool, apparently. yeah. How popular was the book at this time, Jeff? Do you know much about that? Um. The, the important thing is that both Sal- Saltzman and Kane both really enjoyed it, hence why it was turned into the book. And what's interesting, I guess, um, would you say that it, because apparently the book had only been uh, written uh, three years prior to yeah, that's right the creation of the film. So uh, to me, that sounds like a very, very short period of time mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. Uh, like a book to being, uh, you know, greenlit as a, as a, as a feature film. You'd be surprised. Yes. Sometimes they, I mean, they yeah. fast track them very quick. Like uh, Gone with the Wind and Rebecca were made within like a year or so. From oh, which really? They, they were released. Actually, at the same time, oh. I, I've just been reading lately on a book on Hollywood, old old school Hollywood, and Selznick produced Gone with the Wind and Rebecca at the same time, literally. Like, it's just wild. Cool. I didn't um, know. Yeah. Again, I was, I was watching one of the... Um, an interview with, with uh, Michael Caine um, from 2006. So, you know, it's quite a period. Well, one, it's, it's dated in today because, you know, it's almost 20 years. But obviously it's over. It's like, what, 1965, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he was talking how, uh, how you know, um, he was a very good friend of Harry Saltzman um, and – how he had actually met him at a coffee shop. He was with his best friend, uh, Kane was, um, in, I believe it was 1964, uh, with his best friend at the time, Terrence Stamp. Uh, obviously, oh, he's, mm-hmm, he's a mm-hmm. well-known um, actor. Neil before Zod. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, he saw Harry Saltzman uh, in there, and he uh, just sort of like got the waiter or somebody to pass him a note and just said, you want to have coffee? And he said, of course I do. And then basically. That was um, it. Oh, more or less. Yeah. Like he was saying like, oh, you know, let's have lunch. He's like, uh, do you like uh, Len Dayton books? I'm like, yeah. Yeah. It's like, do you like the book? So it's actually, I'm reading it right now. I run like, this isn't just like. Cool. That's neat. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I like, he's like, oh, okay. Do you want to, do you want to, do you want to be in it? And I'm like, oh yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. he's like, why not? <laughs> and. So they actually apparently uh, the, there was no name for the the main character. I, I don't understand. I, I didn't know that, but apparently Michael Caine was like, "They're like, we need to have a, we want him to be boring because they're like, hey, he's kind of like a boring, you know, spy. But like, we like that, you know, that this is why Harris Olsen wanted to sort of action this because it was sort of the antithesis of of what's going on with James Bond at the time. 
And he's like, let's think of a boring name. So Kate literally blurted out, what about Harry? And so, oh, shit. Sorry, Harry's like, I'm not offended because my real name's Herschel. <laughs> That's what he said. But, <laughs> nice one. And they're just like, what about Palmer? And apparently Palmer, um, if I'm not mistaken. That was his middle was name. name yeah. of, uh, well, that, oh, well, actually, what he was saying is that it was a really nerdy guy he knew. Right. Uh, and okay. so he's like, let's just call him Harry Palmer. Because <laughs> it, it was the nerdiest thing they could think of. Job done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, guys, this is um, our second of three non-bonds. Um, we had a little, we had a little break in between. Like in the past seasons, we've kind of done one, two, three after each other consecutively. This time around, we took a little break, did some different things in between, and now we're back with our second of three films. Uh, listeners can expect the exact same treatment, though, right, guys? We're going to do a bit of production. We're going to do a little summary, and then we're going to share our story, acting, and atmosphere scores. Right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, nice one. Yeah, that is right. So we do hope wherever you have tuned in to Bond by Numbers, we do hope that you're doing well. And thank you very much for listening. We appreciate it. This is our final season. And as we look now down the tunnel of our last five or six episodes, we're really grateful that you're on board with us. So yeah, Jeff Absolutely. Chapman, I know you've got tons of production information you want to share with us. So let's just turn it straight over to you for a good sharp start on the Ipcris file. Your choice okay. for three non-bonds. I chose this because I'd always heard about the like sort of, you know, here and there. And then I remember seeing, you know, clips of an, a younger Michael Caine with cool, you know, like glasses or, or even, I guess I think they're cool now, but back, you know, back in the day before they were nerdy glasses. And, and that was also a huge thing uh, just to mention that he was considered like the first sort of leading man to have glasses. Uh, that was mm. a big thing. Also, mm -hmm. it was kind of a, the complete opposite of a, James Bond or or Cary Grant, those kind of like leading leading man roles, uh, right up to this point, I really didn't have glasses on, and uh, right on. so yeah. it was kind of funny. And, and he was like, "That's fine with me because I need glasses." <laughs> He's like, "Good, <laughs> works well." Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels with uh, James Bond obviously with the production people uh, and, and, and crew um, the, the film was made at Pinewood Studios um, with the the uh, the sets were designed by uh, Peter Merton and Ken Adam we know who that is yeah you know? I noticed and, Ken Adam on this yeah. I was wondering if yeah. if it was more Merton or more Adam like what where did the credit go there in terms of the production design? Um, I, I believe it's more Ken Adam. That's mm -hmm. uh, from what I've seen here. Um, and um, it, what, what I, what I thought was interesting uh, and unfortunately I, and I, I don't have a whole lot of information, but the uh, how they, they made that, that sort of uh, I guess it was a stable or something that they used um, to have that, to make it look like that Eastern European sort of uh, jail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, I, I really like that because I've seen similar things in recent films where they kind of go that far, but I haven't seen something like that with uh, with older films. And so that just shows you the level of um, 
like the whole ruse and everything that they yeah put like how deep that goes right like you know yeah. they hired all those people they had the uniforms and yeah. like it was a whole place like they had you know the instructions um uh, you know and warnings and everything was labeled so that was i thought that was that was pretty cool you know for the depth of the ruse sorry um and um one thing I was going to say about, I guess it's production or filming, was that uh, the uh, the cinematographer, I don't know, do you have information on Otto Heller, Josh? Uh, I don't want to step on your toes. In relation I, to I don't have anything on Heller. I just have points about his, about his, about his work, but I don't have any history on him, no. I do know that... Uh... I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not familiar with his background prior to the Ipcris file. Mm. Um, so th I just want to, because I'm going to try. And, oh, I mean, obviously, I'm going to relate this to production, but because um, obviously he was the film crew uh, and the cinematographer. Uh, and again, um, when I was uh, researching and watching the documentary uh, with uh, Michael Caine, he was uh, explaining how how. So, uh, Otto Heller was such a very interesting individual. He really enjoyed working with him. Uh, apparently he was a German Jew and he had um, escaped uh, Germany in 1939. And then, cause then, uh, you know, Kane had mentioned, he's like, well, man, you got up pretty late. How'd you do that? He's like, well, mm -hmm. apparently um, this was in 39 and, and all of his friends were saying, you should probably go. You should probably yeah. go. And then one of the crew members on his like his like you know because they're all like uh, like a tight knit family. One day, one of his crew members walked on set in an SS uniform in 1939, and he he walked up to Otto and said, "Well, first of all, Otto was like, oh, and he's like, uh, okay, yes, I joined the SS, and you need to leave now. <laughs> I'm like today, and he's like, oh." So he was working okay. in Germany at the time, like for for like Ufa yeah, he was doing or, Ger or German film. Like he was, he was crazy. just a German film, uh, or sorry, not a director, but a cinematographer, and he had like a crew, uh, yeah. and and then and it's funny because they just saw they knew how things were going, and they knew that he was, they knew he was Jewish, mm -hmm. and 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 so, but it's ironic that one of the crew just came in dressed like because he he had signed up, I guess he you know, and then he. But it's ironic because he's like, yeah, get out of here, man. <laughs> like you have to go, and he did, and he obviously he survived. Um, and uh, the, yeah, so I, so I thought that was pretty interesting. And uh, McLean wow. was, yeah, he was like, wow, that's uh, that's pretty crazy. Did he go to England or did he go straight to Hollywood? Yeah. Oh no, I think no, I think he went to England. I think that's okay. uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, again, with the filming locations, uh, it's Royal Albert Hall. Um, South Kensington, London, mm -hmm. and uh, some Piccadilly of the exteriors was, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Piccadilly Circus. Um, and, do you guys, you know, where they're having the walk? There was when, um, mm -hmm. was it Dolby and Ross? They're having their constitutional. Um, what is that? Well, what park was that? Do you guys know what that was? Oh, I don't know. No, don't know. Oh, I think it was Hyde Park. I think it was Hyde Park, maybe. Hyde Park, yeah, maybe. Oh, okay, yeah. Not that's sure. a, that because uh, that looks like that's a neat little place. I'd like to go for a walk, feed the birds. I mean, the actual birds. Um, Same place the and, band uh, plays in the pavilion. You mean? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was an interesting scene. Uh, that band scene. Um, so it looks like the uh, principal filming dates were between September twenty first, nineteen sixty four, and uh, December. 11th 1964 which i don't that doesn't seem like very long but at the same like is four months a long time for a shoot 
Uh, for principal photography, that's yeah, a good. That, I'd say it's a that's good a good amount. amount. Yeah. The, the, I remember reading in in this uh, again this book I'm reading about uh, establishment of the, of the classical Hollywood system is that it was it's six weeks pre production, six weeks production, and six weeks post production. That that that's like their goal or something like that. Okay, mm -hmm. that makes Jeff. Sense. Just to answer your question, buddy. Uh, mm -hmm. Saint James Park. In Westminster, I think. Oh, oh. yeah. We make, it makes sense because because nearby Westminster. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, and they were saying so for the the action. It was a set entirely in gritty, gloomy, decidedly non-swinging London with humdrum locations, uh, which uh, which we can all attest to with the way it was filmed. It looked very dark, like it. <laughs> it was definitely not the swinging London, which I mean they portrayed that very well, especially with. Um, the way it was filmed, it, everything was very cold. Obviously, the uh, the fake fake Albania looked pretty pretty uh, not inviting. Uh, and uh, apparently, there's a gaff where when he uh, he sits up in, in his uh, jail cell, he actually moves the wall. <laughs> <laughs> With um, and the super a supermarket. <laughs> oh yeah, the super man. That made me think of Big Daddy for some reason. Just like a supermarket scene, like I was waiting for him to like throw the can and dent it, and then like he'd get <laughs> the, his fancy button mushrooms for cheaper. The they wanted to take out the the cooking scenes, but I'll uh, I'll, I'll say it again at another point. But basically, what they were saying was that it was actually um, Len Dayton's hands because he's a really good cook, and uh, and uh, and the. Oh, cool. the um, it's funny the they couldn't find on one the wall. on the production team. Like they had to bring in the writer. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think maybe. Well, but then, see, that made me think. Like, if they if they fired him from the writer, why the hell was he still on the set cooking or like doing that? Like, wouldn't that maybe be they got like those uh, shots early? I guess yeah, it, yeah. it could be. I, there's a, I remember hearing a story. I don't know if you can con confirm it, Jeff, but I read that Sidney Fury, uh, the director of the film, uh, who Saltzman hired. Um, mm -hmm. He apparently on the first day of shooting, he just set the script on fire and then yeah. started re yeah. rewriting again. Yes, from yeah, from what I researched there, um, Michael Caine is quoted in saying that uh, on the first day, he was actually um, on his way on a, in a taxi, and the and then the because ta the taxi I guess knew that they were picking him up for this production, and mm -hmm. the taxi driver was just chewing the fat, and he was like are you in this? Uh, are you, are you in this? Like, uh, he's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like, have you read the book? He's like, yeah, it's the biggest load of crap I've ever read is what he said. <laughs> and, and then he gets there and, and um, yeah. And then basically um, he, um, they were saying, Oh man, this script's terrible. Uh, and he, he literally lit it on fire and, uh, and Saltzman like was just berating him so bad that he ended up like, crying yeah he was, gonna, yeah he was gonna take a bus to leave and yeah someone had to like run him down and say you know like no not even you know who ran him down it was harry saw it was basically like so, michael oh. kane was like yo harry easy what's going on and it, what do you I mean, i'm paraphrasing because you know he's friends with him but he was like what was that for and then like so apparently uh fury like just booked it and was just crying like just beside himself um, and, uh, he got on a bus and then it was basically Saltzman and, and, and Kane in a Rolls Royce chasing down this bus. And when they told the bus driver to pull over, he told them to like, sawed off. Mm -hmm. So they ended up getting him back. But anyways, yeah, it's like, 
Some, some Rolls Royce side swipes you and tells you to pull over. I, was, I can imagine what the bus <laughs> right? driver said. I mean, he's like, it was, he's like, because he's laughing. He's like, we're in our Phantom Rolls Royce chasing down this double decker bus. And then when we roll down the window and tell him to pull over, he's like, no, screw yourself. <laughs> I'm like, like, okay. Uptown comes downtown. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just about Fury. I, so he's a Canadian filmmaker. So yay, Canada. Uh, yay. He, worked, he worked with the CBC like. Way way before and in, in, in the fifties, he worked along like Norman Jewish and, and Ted Kotcheff, mm-hmm. uh, who are well known like Canadian uh, directors producers. And so this was like his big chance, uh, you know, to make his own style, make his own thing. So th- he was very much like in a certain mood when he started this film. Like I, he he was going into full auteur mood. So you can kind of see probably the emotional roller coaster this director gets, you know, goes on when he's making this film and. Just right then and there, you know, like he runs, he he gets chewed out by Saltzman and he, he makes a run for it. So emotion, high emotional stakes. Let's just say that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it worked out. Um, this I I I loved I, I love the cinematography in this film. And uh, my, my, uh, Michael Caine is quoted saying, you know, he went there. He's like, what's on the second floor? What's going on up there? It's like, well, that's where the camera is. But why? I'm down here. He's like. Because uh, uh, Fury was telling him, he's like, I want, but I want it to look like someone else is watching, which is true. Like almost the whole movie, it's like you're wa- like someone else is watching. Like you're like, you know, you're, uh, and and I think that's one of the best parts of that. Uh, of the, of the, There's like of almost peepholes everywhere, and they have yeah, the camera everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know about you, but I felt there was this one shot where like it shoots, but under arms, like so it looks like it's a almost like a triangle, and I think it's. I think it's how he he's resting his arm or something, and it's uh, it's showing um, Courtney, uh, Jean mm-hmm. Courtney, and it made me think of uh, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> cool. I don't know. I just yeah. Cuckoo, <laughs> cuckoo. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Josh. Fun fact. Fun fact. Um, Fury was also the director of, or sorry, Man Four. No, no, no. He also wrote. Iron Eagle and Iron Eagle Two, which ties what? nicely in. It ties nicely into our recent book review. On it kind of lose or die. <laughs> nice plug, yeah. That's two, yeah. Because wow. because Iron Eagle was like the other Top Gun kind of kind of friend. Yeah, so I remember. Yeah, it yeah. was like oh. Jr. It's like I just mm-hmm. watched Top Gun. I'm like, do I want to yeah. watch it again? Uh, I'll, I'll maybe I'll wait a day, and then I'm like, okay, I'll just yeah. put on Iron Eagle. <laughs> no, I like yeah. I liked it, but you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he did ladybugs like in the late 90s with oh, rodney yeah. dangerfield I remember that i remember that yeah and then you have the big combo at the end in post-production you got peter hunt as the editor yeah right? so, exactly yeah i found yeah. yeah yeah that's pretty neat um because obviously he knows what he's doing uh, and obviously again he's one of the uh the james bond crew yep um so is norm lonstall who did the sound editing? I think. Oh, that's what. Yeah, well, I had. I was going to so, say yeah. about that in relation to the production. I was going to mention that. Also, I was thinking like, hmm, 1965 and all this kind of weird tape. I'm like, it's almost kind of like Pink Floyd. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, it's interesting because yeah, that guy he worked on. Uh, he actually he won the best sound editing for Goldfinger, right? That's that's right. Yeah, Long still, yeah, yeah. And um, what was I going to say about that? Um, it was created by this. Uh, by the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, which is famous because they had done a whole bunch of different um, sort of sound effects, and uh, it was sort of like the chief, the chief sort of um, sound 
uh, creation workshop for BBC. So a lot of things like, um, uh, well, I know uh, Doctor Who was one of the big ones they worked on. Mm. Um, and for the sound, uh, sorry, go I, ahead. Yeah. No, I was just wondering, did Saltzman get that on the cheap then if he had the BBC's help? Uh, I yeah. I cannot presumably deny that, yeah. but I'm thinking probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, well, unless, if, unless if, that's the sound of the Ipcris file itself, is that what you mean? Like yeah. the sound of the tape? Yeah. That, sorry. Okay, sorry. Yes. Sorry. So that was the was it was conceived by Norman Wanstall, but it was uh, done by uh, another sound editor. But it was created at that radiophonic workshop. Cool. I get you. Um, now. Yeah. It, apparently, uh, I mean, I, if we're going to talk about the score, but it, you know how they were saying John Barry uses there's a, you know obviously the famous uh, guitar for Bond, but for this it was mostly I believe uh, hopefully my pronunciation is correct a symbolum symbolum yeah the symbolum yes. yeah I've got a wee note symbolum. on that Sorry. I can share go. later on if you want but if oh, you've got no, it, that's perfect that's perfect it's, it's no 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 yeah that's that's perfect. That's that's um, the instrument that they, I believe, use in uh, the Lord of the Rings soundtrack for like Gollum's theme. He, it uses a cymbal on. Yeah, it's it's like a dulcimer. They would use it again in Quiller. Right, next Quiller year. Random. Oh, yeah. So it's following that same trend of sort of like bureaucratic spies, as opposed to like, or you know, it's starting the trend because this is a year before Quiller. Yeah, I was going to say. Oh yeah, yes. that's right. Because Quiller was sixty six, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it did get a very good reception uh, as a film. Um, and it ended it, up yeah. being, yeah, I mean, it was on the BFI 100 and it's uh, apparently it's at number 59. And even if we're going by recent, I mean, you know, reviews, Rotten Tomato still shows it at, uh, what was it? The sample 31 critics resulting in a rating of 98%, which that's pretty good. And mm -hmm. uh, now there was okay. a remake. I don't know anything about the remake, but apparently it came out like last or two years ago. It was a TV I series. I, I think it was yeah, a TV I, I, miniseries. It, yeah, it, it looks very different. Yeah. And apparently the other two uh, Harry Palmer films were not that highly like they, they were basically like failed attempts compared to. Uh, the Ipcris file. Like, but Michael Caine was was in them. He was in the two yep. sequels. Yeah. And the third yeah. sequel was directed by Ken Russell, who became a very well-known horror director in his time, like Altered States. And um, oh. one movie, I, yeah, have you ever seen Altered States with William Hurt? That's a pretty trippy movie. And uh, what's the other one? Gothic, which is that like one with uh, Gabriel Byrne and Natasha Richardson. Oh, uh, yeah. It's basically Byron and 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 the Shelleys like spending a whole weekend together in like in a big mansion, and that's how they supposedly come up with their horror stories. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, that little competition they had between themselves. And Paul Dory, who was also there too, who 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 deserves credit because he was one of the first person to write about vampires, like in, in a way before Bram Stoker. Um, one thing um, to add on to the production was apparently um, the film was shot in technoscope. And so that's uh, the format is normally 35 millimeter frame is split in half. And basically it's uh, taking up two perforations on the edges of the film stock rather than the usual four. Uh, the format was introduced by Technicolor in 1963 and allowed for a greater depth of field as it was shot with lenses that were shorter. 
Hmm. Uh, yeah, I can see. Yeah, that. so I mean, I I love this. And at first, at first, when I started to watch this film, I was like, "What is this?" Like, I'm like, eh, it's kind of boring. But then I was like, "Wait, I think I'm gonna like that because it's gonna be more, maybe a more realistic uh, spy film, if you will." Yeah. And then I was like, "Man, the cinematography is crazy." Like, I was it, I was trying to think. Um, it was um, the third man, right? That we were. It was. It also has crazy cinematography in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just thinking like, wow, that's another one where it's just a crazy, crazy angles and, and, uh, how it was shot. And there's a lot of, um, the depth of fields, depth of field. But I also noticed there was almost a lot of, well, we would call it steady cam now, but it looked like it was just sort of like handheld and walking, uh, which, uh, a little bit. Yeah. I don't, and I like that too, because then you really felt like, you know, the action or the movement was realistic. Like um, when they turn or they, you know, they would walk into frame or it would, I guess it could also be, you would, as a, as a viewer, you might find it jarring and you might be like, well, what is this? But uh, it's pretty sort of avant-garde. Well, I don't know if it's avant-garde for this point, but maybe for a mainstream film it is because mm-hmm. it, it almost felt like almost kind of like artsy in that sense. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. It's deliberate and consistent, whatever it, they're doing. Yeah. With it, it's these canted angles and this camera work. That's kind of jolted and stuff. Like they, they commit to it the whole way through the production. Yeah. The so, whole way. It's not just yeah. where it's like, Oh, we felt for this. We'll do this. Like they carried it the whole way through, mm-hmm. which yeah. I, I appreciated. Yeah. Fury um, had a plan. You, you could tell yeah, how he, he definitely wanted to tell did. the story. Yeah. Um, and I, also, and I, 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 I had sort of mentioned this to Josh. Like I, I kind of, wish or i it would be neat to see this film in black and white Hmm. because of the lighting and um because the lighting was very interesting lots of backlights and yeah tons of backlights if it was black and white it would be curiosuro like noir style absolutely yeah well that exactly exactly but um and like those low angle shots are very noir too where like lots of low angles yeah yeah and sometimes so i didn't understand the point of some of the really low angles, like there's this one shot with Ross it, when he first walks in to meet Dolby in the in like the fake, uh, you know, the 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 office, like they're kind of um, their HQ there, um, where he he walks into Dolby and is explaining that you know they have uh, they have um, uh, Palmer as the replacement, but then there, I just I didn't understand like because obviously when you see those types of like super low angle shots, it's like he's a villain and like. You know, it's ominous, but I just I didn't understand that shot. But I mean, it still worked. I just was like, I just thought it was kind of interesting for that. Well, um, I if you look ahead. at both, what, what was it like the scene you're talking about when he first meets Dolby, and then also even before the scene when he meets Ross and he's walking through like the halls of the of the ministry of the Ministry of Defense, right? Yeah. There's a lot of um, what's the term? Uh, negative space in this film. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, because you have the camera work kind of showing kind of zooming in or making things feel cramped with like low angles or confined but then at the same time you have all this negative space too where it just feels empty and there's a little bit of Kubrick in that too I think like some of the scenes like when especially in Dolby's office reminded me of scenes like when Kurt Douglas walks into like the general's uh, uh, chambers you know in Pass of Glory and stuff like that there was the empty minute, the empty, useless ministry, you know, and oh well, yeah, that's exactly because I thought yeah. that too. I thought it was very cold, but I also liked it because like it almost felt like it was like a makeshift office. Like it's just sort of like this is this is where they're working out of right now. Because like also yeah. the echo, right? Like I, I mean, I don't know if that was on purpose or it was just the way that it was miked. But when he walks in and he starts talking to him, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I just thought of? Do you remember that scene in Christmas Vacation where he's talking to his boss, like uh, Brian Doyle Murray, and yeah. like, there's that delay where he's like, oh, hi, did you get our gift? He's like, and then he waits a couple seconds and then he responds because it's so far away. I almost felt it was like that because it's so cold and impersonal and he's <laughs> trying to talk to the guy at the far end of the, of the room. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, A while ago, you had said that the film opened to good reviews. And yes. Oh, yes. The what? When was the film actually released in cinema? Do you have a release uh, it date? It was released in March, March eighteenth, uh, nineteen of nineteen sixty-five. March. 65, that was in the UK. Right? I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure yeah. when it was released in the states, but I I have a feeling it was. Much heck, I'll find out. But I, I know that it was released uh, in March eighteenth, um, on March eighteenth, nineteen sixty-five. Cool. Okay, and people liked it at the time. It how, how much money yes. did it earn in the cinema? Do you know what it's? What it the budget was 309 309,000 pounds um yeah, which is not a lot no, no that's really not um i can see that well dr no was a million right yeah yeah was, back then i guess you're adjusting for inflation too right so that amount back then would be you know probably a couple of million today i suppose yeah yeah yeah, it's one of the situations where, like, yeah, if someone told me that was the budget at the time, I would believe it for that movie. But at the same time, like, it doesn't look like it's cheap per se. It looks like it's filmed on location and it's and it's shot competently, mm-hmm. more than mm-hmm. competently. So, you know, it's it still has a prestige look to it, despite you know the low budget. Yeah, it's impressive. But it did bro. well for a low. Yeah, that's a, that's yeah. the thing. Is like it, it did well for the the budget, yeah. and uh, it, it, it obviously definitely... it's got lasting appeal. And it probably rode the spy craze. I think that the Bond series started that was happening by like the mid 60s where you have like TV shows like, you know, like the Avengers or the man from uncle um, to get yeah. smart with a parody in a couple of years from that. So, I mean, mm-hmm. Mission probably Impossible. riding that Paul Cre- Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was late 60s. I, I believe when that started it? like okay. right. 68, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Mm-hmm. It's funny, yeah, though. You can't always right, tr- yeah, you can't always trust the, the sources you get because I'm just looking at three different online yeah. sources right now. One I of know. them says the budget was 460. Another one says it was 750,000, which translates into about 310,000 pounds. Another that's one what says yeah, 610,000. So it, you just, yeah. it's somewhere under a million anyway. Yeah, it's definitely under a million, and under and because uh, still a million is a million, but a million's a lot more in the sixties if you if you yeah, go with the yeah, nowadays, yeah. right? Sources <laughs> aren't always the best, and even like some what you would think is primary sources are not reliable either. You never know. Moreover, with the production, uh, it it seems like it was a pretty uh, pretty tight shot film, and all sort of you know very accessible within uh, London and, and uh, with uh, Pima Studios. And uh, it it uh, seemed to have done very well. Um, and obviously they had the appropriate people. The, the new that we're doing, the, the, the James mm-hmm. Bond crew, looks like the majority of them were helping out with this. So uh, that's, uh, that's my production notes, if you will. Nice work, Jeff. I've got a little summary provided here now. I've uh, recorded for us. Often here on Bond by Numbers, we write. Uh, in fact, most of the times we write our own plot summaries. But this one, I decided to to pilfer, and I'll give credit to the BFI Screen Online website because my synopsis was heavily drawn from that. So here we go with a little summary of the Ipcris file with a pretty heavy hand of help from the BFI. <laughs> 
Harry Palmer, a sergeant working for a Ministry of Defence organisation, is summoned from a stakeout by his boss, Colonel Ross. Ross tells him he's to be transferred to a home office counter-espionage unit headed by Major Dalby. Palmer is replacing an agent killed that morning, while trying, unsuccessfully, to prevent the kidnapping of Radcliffe, a British scientist. Dalby introduces his team, including Jean Courtney, who deliberately ignores him, and Jock Carswell, who quickly befriends him. Dalby sends them to find Eric Ashby Grantby, a native of Albania and his chief of staff, known only as House Martin. Dalby believes Radcliffe is being held for ransom and that Grantby must be responsible. Using a Scotland Yard contact, Harry Palmer locates Grantby, who gives Harry a piece of paper with a contact number on it. Harry tries the number from a phone booth, but it doesn't work. He tries to stop Grantby leaving, but House Martin attacks him, and the two get away. Later that day, Harry goes home and finds that Jean has been sent there by Dalby to check up on him. The two become friends. Sometime later, Jock and Harry learn that House Martin has been arrested, but by the time they reach the police station, they find that men impersonating them have killed him. A search of the warehouse where House Martin was picked up reveals only a piece of audio tape marked Ipcress. Shopping at a supermarket, Harry is approached by Ross, who asks him to spy on Dalby's activities. Harry refuses. Although Harry thinks Jean is spying for Ross, he decides to ignore it, and soon they become lovers. Contact with Grantby is re-established and a deal struck for Radcliffe's safe return. But while the exchange goes as planned, Harry sees a man suddenly move towards them and fires. The dead man turns out to be a CIA agent who has also been following Grantby. Harry is threatened by another CIA operative who says that he will kill him if he discovers that the death was not a mistake. Some days later, it becomes clear that while Radcliffe is physically unharmed, his mind has been affected and he can no longer function as a scientist. Jock tells Harry that he knows what Ipcress means, showing him a book entitled Induction of Psychoneuroses by Conditioned Reflex Under Stress. The scientist has clearly been brainwashed. Jock borrows Harry's car to test the theory on Radcliffe, but he's killed before he reaches him. Harry realizes that he must have been the intended target and decides to move in with Jean until the situation is resolved. Returning to the office, Harry finds that the Ipcress file compiled by Jock relating to 17 other scientists, all of whom have been rainwashed, has been stolen from his desk. Harry goes back to his flat to collect his belongings and finds the body of the second CIA man. Believing that he is being set up, he tells Dalby what has happened. Dalby tells him to leave town for a while. While on a train to Paris, Harry is apprehended by Grantby's men. After several days in a cell and denied sleep, food, and warmth, Harry is told that he has been taken to Albania. Having read the file, Harry realizes that this treatment is part of the conditioning for the brainwashing procedures to come. During the procedure, he clasps a nail taken from his cell in his closed fist to distract himself. After many sessions, in which Harry is hypnotized and conditioned with electronic sounds and disorientating images, he appears to succumb. 
Grantby instills a trigger phrase that will make Harry act unconsciously against his will and follow any commands given to him. Harry eventually overcomes his guard, takes his gun, and escapes. Reaching the street, he realizes he is still in London. He phones Dalby, who is actually in league with Grantby. Dalby uses the trigger phrase, making Harry call Ross to the warehouse. When Dalby and Ross arrive, Dalby again uses the trigger phrase to try to convince Harry that Ross is the traitor. Harry frees himself from the indoctrination by recalling the pain to his hand and shoots Dalby in self-defense. Credits roll. Well, Josh, we have three categories to our scoring. Uh, dedicated listeners on Bomb by Numbers will know how we do this, but why don't you just explain anyway what we got going for those who may be new to the show? Yeah, it's just simply uh, S-A-A. So story out of 10, acting out of 10, and atmosphere out of 10. All right. Well, why don't you go first, Josh? Story. How did you find the story of the Ipcris file as we saw it in the film? Well, we talked about the anti-Bond aspect of it. And I found that refreshing. And it was an interesting way to look at the spy story in comparison, even though we have been looking at non-Bond stories and being used to that, you know, in, in the other films that, that we chose. Overall, I think the story flows pretty well. You're kind of dropped in the middle of it because you sort of follow Palmer around and then he, he, he you know, and, and he's assigned to the case and, and you, you know, he makes his way through it and encounters what he does as it goes along. There's there's things in there like uh, red herrings because it kind of becomes a whodunit when, uh, when when his colleague is killed and then the American agent is killed. So that builds up a bit of suspense in the storyline. And then you have the main thing about the scientists. Uh, you're and you're trying to and you're trying to figure out Palmer as a character, and I think that's kind of left. Uh, it's left sort of um, how do I describe it? It's let sort of for you to guess at what his motivations are. You get the point that he doesn't seem very happy in his job, and the, and the writing kind of carries that. And it's in terms of like the dialogue for the writing, it's very minimalist for the characters. Mm-hmm. Like they don't say and they don't say a lot. The actors they're given lines that work. The ones I think who have the most lines in the movie are probably Dolby and Ross and Grampy. I would say are are probably the ones that have the most dialogue in the film. Like mm-hmm. Kane has dialogue, but it's very little and. But but how, but when he does speak though, I because of the actors of his presence and whatnot, and mm-hmm. just the 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 attitude that he gives his body language, he he's a presence on screen, and that sort of makes you and that makes you follow him through the story as a way. I'll stay away from that though because that kind of that also goes into the acting. But to me, following this character through the story as the protagonist was very important for me to determine it as a story. So I like how we're with the, we're with Michael Caine's character trying to figure things out as we go along. We're on the same level of narrative mm-hmm. knowledge. So I really enjoyed that aspect of the story. And I was trying to figure things out. Like, was Ro- was Dolby actually insinuating that Ross was the bad guy? Like, you, halfway through the film, you think it might be Ross who's in who's in on this with Grampy. Yeah. But it might. So the, the Dolby thing was a bit of a surprise to me in that final mm-hmm. reveal. And but looking back on it, it makes sense because of. Um, Dolby just knew too much. And then you think, of course, that Courtney is working for Dolby, but she actually is working for Ross. Well, no, 
you know she's working for Ross, so you you kind of you're kind of suspicious of her a little bit, but then you realize because Ross ends up being you know a good guy in his own way, uh, you can trust Courtney as well. So I think they did, they did a good plot with the with with the characters in terms of the storyline and how it was told. Um, the one thing I think was kind of missing was like, uh, and they wanted to, you know, and and the, the 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 writing and the directing and the cinematography and the editing it all goes into kind of telling the story of this man who's in a job that he doesn't like that he finds very dull and dreary. It doesn't really have much of a venture for him. And then he kind of is one of those situations where be careful what you wish for, because then of course he ends up being, you know, uh, imprisoned in, in, in a fake Albanian prison and they're just doing things with his mind. And it, it kind of goes from being very kind of procedural kind of spy story something very like almost like John Lake Hare style if you think about it and mm -hmm. then it goes into almost like I'll, I'll not lie I've been watching the Avengers uh this past year the original series and there was an episode from like 1965 I believe where they were kidnapping scientists and they were putting mm -hmm. them and, and 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 basically hiding them in the basement of a hotel and thinking that was China and making them think mm -hmm. that they were in China and whatnot so I wonder if that borrowed from that I don't know it's very possible I'm just saying is that if it turns from being like a procedural halfway through into mm. almost like a, a typical kind of like 60s spy story about brainwashing and Manchurian candidates, you know what I mean? Like it it kind of goes on, onto the James, yeah, the brain drain, but it kind of goes, mm. it, it tiptoes around, you know, almost being into spy sci-fi territory in the last mm. quarter. But I did find that the whole, what was I wanted to know what was going on. So that kept me intrigued all the way through. Um, so I enjoyed that part of it, even though like I was trying to make an emotional connection and I found that was lacking in the writing and because of the minimalist dialogue, but I was so enveloped by the style that it didn't really bother me too much. So I was detached emotionally, but I was, I was, I was intrigued intellectually. I, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. That kind of pushed me along. Um, overall the story itself and was good. I, I don't think it's a great story per se. Like it's very, yeah. It's very predictable, but it, I think it worked for what it was. It wasn't any, anything spectacular. It wasn't any. It was more about how the story was told that exactly. made me enjoy it more as a movie. So, in terms of plot, and one a plot too that I think I think was lacking a bit of a denouement, in my opinion. I think it could have used like another scene after in the end, but I, I accept that was kind of a feature of older films that they kind of just like ends abruptly when they have all the main conflicts resolved. There's no sort of, there's a, there's a lack of, you know, uh, it just ends, you know, and I, I kind of felt like I wanted a little bit more after that. Like what was, I wanted to know what Dolby was really doing. Was Dolby a traitor or was the British government actually as like a, actually using these, these scientists like Grampy to brainwash people as experiments. Like I wasn't quite sure if this was a brain drain yeah, thing or if this was just point. experimentation within like a secret shadow portion of the British government. So I wanted a bit more of that. So overall, I give the story seven out of 10. Okay. Seven out of 10 for you. Um, I was a mark above you for the story of the Ipcris file. Oh, I, okay. I felt that, I mean, I, I get what you're saying and I agree that we need more stuffing about the Ipcris file itself earlier on. Like I think a plant here or a plant there about the tape or even like a suspicion about that. Like I, I get why you withhold because withholding. I, I, I want to give it an eight. I really do. Yeah. Well, something, yeah. 
withholding makes sense, right? But the fair play nature of the story, I think it's hurt a little bit by not giving the audience a slice of something early. Cause I don't agree that we step every step of the way with Palmer. I, I, I think we're meant to be a little bit outside of him a bit. Like hmm. I, I don't see that we're moving exactly along with him. At least I don't feel that that's because there's so many cutaways and third, three third person camera work. Like I don't feel like we're always in his eye line, and I, it's not like Hitchcockian protagonist where you're matching up exactly with that guy. Mm, good point. Like you know Roger, uh, whatever his name is, Thornfield or whatever was his name, Thornhill or in, Roger uh, Thornhill. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not like identical like that. But hey, whatever. That's by the by. The plot of the story is tight. It's lean. There's no fat really on this one, boys. Like every scene feels no. like it does contribute something. Like mm -hmm. I now have a problem with some scenes. The only exception I'd make to that, I think, uh, are the scenes with Jean. Like there is, there's humor and spontaneity about them, Ooh. I guess. Like, you know, the mod girl in the kitchen and all. But like her role in the story, particularly when revealed at the end, like it just felt a bit uncomfortable. Like Ross was kind of pimping her out to keep an eye on Harry, which yeah. I, I, I get it. But like... I think I'd got I'd have gone along with it a bit more if she had just fa actually fancied Harry herself yeah. instead of just being yeah. a female. It, it was very I agree that that, that, yeah. that was amb like, ambiguous. Like, I, I do like though, Scott, and this is one of one reason I was I forgot about this point I wanted to mention. I like the fact that she instigates the sex, but yeah. afterwards, when you learn that she was actually deliberately instigating the sex, it, it was very kind. And it's because it's funny because you have Bond, a, a spy character who is supposed to be the anti-Bond, right? So he's cooking for the woman. And then the woman instigates, you, you know, the fun afterwards. And then you have the reveal at the end that she was actually luring him along, or, or at least I don't know. You, it's, it's ambiguous whether or not she just she liked him and just did more of her duty than she should have. I, you know, but yeah, I don't know that I agree that she instigated the sex. Like she certainly consented to it, but he she took off the glasses, but he was like standing yeah, over. He walked her. across. He walked across the <laughs> yeah. room, sat himself down, and like True. touched her leg or something. Like I, I just think yeah. it, it's it's a gray area. But yeah, I, yeah. I just yeah. I just feel like using her as a device in like this male puppet show was just a bit. It just kind of pissed me off a wee bit. Now I'm not denying yeah. the precedence of it. I'm not saying it never happened. Sure. Of course yeah. it used it it happened in intelligence using women in this way, but but simply yeah. noting that the revelation towards the end, I just think it comes across a bit manipulative and bigoted. But you know, I'm 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 ultimately yeah. wanting agency from a story, perhaps at a time that is, is not regularly offering it up for these characters. And ultimately yeah. it's it remains a minor gripe with me. Uh, more of a, I guess, like a contextual grimace. <laughs> I, I just, <laughs> I guess it's just, it doesn't pass the Bechtel test. <laughs> Let's just say that, you know. Definitely not. I don't think so. But yeah, I mean, I, I like the story. It's tight. Like it is smaller, mm. but deliberately smaller than the Bond stories. I think this is like an anti-Bond yep. in that respect. There's, oh yeah. There's like in some Bond films, right? You get a, a laugh or you get a bit of action or like the costume or something is deliberately given time to perform. But here, all the little, the, the, the bits of humor and the bits of charm, I feel like it's more plot purposeful here with the characters edging or something like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Um, Grant B, he is not hard for Palmer to find though. Like, okay, no, I get no. I get that's the plot that's necessary, but this whole branch couldn't do it, but Harry Palmer nails yeah. it just by some simple police work. Like, yeah, the library and finds yeah just go to the library. <laughs> yeah, just go to the library. Okay, I'll find the guy. Like, it's rendered even more silly, boys, when, when Jock is able to decipher Ipcris. Like, if he's that yeah. intelligent, why didn't he think of working through the registration plates? True. Like, Dalvi is not exactly protecting the secret uh, also, terribly well. How was the, how was the uh, 
Ipcris, like the, um, it doesn't even make sense. Like, why would they use the, the ESS? It doesn't even like if they're, it's the way you know, um, the the way they were describing the how it's broken down. Like, how did mm-hmm. how did you how would you get that out of that? Like, yeah, I understand yeah. the the eye, but because then, plot because plot. Yeah, I yeah. was like, what? I'm like, okay, yeah, you needed to. Yeah, exactly. You needed to. Here's a question for you, like. Okay, so Grampy is modernizing Gestapo techniques, right, of torture mm-hmm. with the whole audiovisual right. torment yeah. and the sleep deprivation. But why is he so friggin' keen? Like, and maybe this is the Bond moment in the story. Why is he so keen on using Palmer? It seems like an awfully big risk. Yeah, wouldn't it be just be more sensible to kill him and get someone less connected, less capable? Because wow. it's always like the villain needs satisfaction of watching the agent antagonist kind of get get a comeuppance or something. At least he didn't leave the room like a James well, yeah, Bond villain it, did, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think yeah. for what you're saying is that there's more of a risk here because he's an he's an he's an operative. So like, if something happens or whatever, like mm-hmm. there's more risk here. Where if you just find someone else that doesn't have, that's not you know mm-hmm. um, within the intelligence community or whatever that or to that something like that, it, it, there would be a lot less um, attention drawn. But yeah. 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 That- but you know, guys, I'll say though, just in closing my point on mm-hmm. story, like I realize I'm, I'm, I'm offering more criticism than I am like really no, that's fine. supportive points. And I've gone for an eight, which is a high mark. I think it's because the story was lean and it's, and yeah. I liked where it was going and I liked how it started. And I loved the way at the very end, one of the last things that Ross says is that I was counting on you being an insubordinate bastard. That quote. <laughs> that was good. That yeah, that was good. All full circle. And it tells us yeah, exactly. his whole purpose of using Palmer was that he expected him to flush out Dalby. And that made sense. So it, yeah. it is a, it's a small story. It's a tight story. It isn't big with as many set pieces as a Bond or anything. But it's a good little intelligence story. And yeah. it's got its problems. But I was really... In, I was enjoying watching it and following it, mm-hmm. and I liked the character performances. Like Josh says, maybe maybe I'm gushing a bit because there were other features of the film that helped the story along a lot. I think on its own, maybe it's not as great a story as an eight. But for my enjoyment of it, yeah, I, I went for an eight because I think I was I was all in, even though I was picking bits of it apart. Yeah, I was in. I, I was into. I it. think it, I think eight was the same one. Uh, for story, I think is you you gave to the born identity, or did you give nine to the born identity? I can't, I can't remember. It was a high mark, though. It was a high mark, though. Yeah. What but, did you go for, Jeff? I'm... Yeah. Um, for story, see, I was, I mean, kind of t- uh, teeter tottering between six, six and a half, seven. It's huh? funny because I'm gonna have, uh, well, the way I'm gonna explain it uh, is that I almost have as much criticism as I do. I liked it, but. The reasons are very similar. It's like I thought it was a pretty humdrum story, but that's also why I liked it because it's mm-hmm. it's more realistic. Story. It's yeah. just well, it, I mean, because you know it, it's it's anti Bond, but it's realistic. It's like the boring espionage because ninety percent of uh, you know spy work, intelligence work is you know just following up on leads, looking yeah. at documents, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, parking chits. Or 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 tax, uh, you know, receipts and and, and they so, do say that in the film too. They do yeah, exactly. Say I that. mean, look yeah. at look at look in the film and how many times, like when they're going to their desk and he's like, "Wait, you have all these? Like, you had to fill this up, uh, man." Like, you know, like, or something, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like CC one, <laughs> like it's all, and that's what I liked is like it showed them filling it out. It showed the humdrum. That's the realistic. But it's not. It's not like. It's like you Even though C-clearance? he did draw a paper airplane across the room, which Bond would totally do, mm-hmm, or something mm-hmm. even more ridiculous to get mm-hmm. someone else to do, like 
here, you do it, nerd. Or, hey, pen, uh, Poindexter, fill up, do my homework. Yeah. But, um, hey, Josh, do you remember, just sorry, just it kind of connects to what you're saying. Josh, you remember Five Decembers, that book we read recently? Mm-hmm. Um, the character in that story that we're following says that an awful lot. He says that, you know, he, like he he's willing to put the hours in looking over registration plates, looking over journals and stuff, because he says that's where most crimes are, are, are solved. You know, yeah, they're not solved on the street, right? So that kind of admin work is is crucially important to it. it so. It's Absolutely. extremely important. You, you just spend like and- hours with a whole bunch of like. I think was it the one instance you're talking about, Scott, is the character spent like hours looking for this exact make of motor vehicle at the, you know in the police, yeah. like mm-hmm. and he just and he just went to his own little corner of like the light the um, I guess the records office or whatever and just went mm-hmm. and looked and spent hours until until he found it and that's what you got to do in that kind of police work and particularly spy work because you also have to find connections and and you have to make links between certain peoples and organizations and follow the money to where it goes you know like follow the money and it will take you anywhere you know um and it's just going back to the whole idea of like we're not a typical bond story just think of the opening of of the movie of the movie yeah i loved it you, get, you get the cold open you get the cold open uh, set up sets up the story and then you have where would the normally the bond theme song would be you have michael kane getting up his morning routine making coffee like a literally he's literally like plunging down on the uh, uh, on the coffee maker or whatever when like the titles he's come falling on. asleep and then you're like you know the, the, the noise of the coffee beans wakes him up again i wonder yeah. if live and let die's introduction of more had something to <laughs> thank for this well we know? were talking we had just i sort of said like it's a bit he's uh obviously roger moore is a better coffee machine Mm-hmm. coffee maker but uh yeah <laughs> we were wondering if there was some parallels there <laughs> what i asked you jeff was do you think roger oh. moore could have been the only bond that could have cooked you know like imagine oh. the scene of roger oh, moore, yeah like, that's what it, yeah yeah in yeah. that same kitchen and live and let die like preparing a meal for miss caruso or making a meal for m while he's there like i could totally see the roger moore bond being a cook of his own i don't know i, I think for roger moore it would work hmm Anyway, yeah, sorry, Jeff, so. you were saying. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah, no, no, it, it, it's okay. Uh, okay, so uh, what I chose eventually, because, I've again, I've been kind of you know teeter-tottering, is seven. Because okay. I really – I like the story, but it's not – but, again, it it's nothing, um, like, earth-shattering, nothing. Like, it's all – it's, you know, it's a fairly straightforward, um, you know, spy film. And, I, again, like, I think you did a good job of explaining how – it changes uh, like at the end, like it kind of goes, it, it's almost like two different films at one point, but uh, the overall story, again, I'm giving it a seven and I think I'm being pretty generous there because as stories go, it's, it was again, just pretty nonchalant, like almost boring. Yeah. But again, mm-hmm. that's why I liked it. Mm-hmm. That's why I enjoyed this movie because it's kind of a realistic portrayal of how, quote-unquote real spies work uh it's unromantic kind of boring uh and you know the leading man has glasses uh he's just (laughs) a regular guy like he and he's got and the thing is he's got his own um ideas of how things work like ultimately like he's not doing this for king and country he's like one i got pulled out of the clink uh and two you know okay it's a it's a promotion so Mm -hmm. i'll do it uh and then obviously you know well, he's doing it. He's 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 good at his job, but it's not like this is like his life. This is not like, you know, it's like oh my god. He's like I'm just doing it. I'm good at it. 
uh, which I found again, I found refreshing. Um, Cool. So, so that's I gave it. A, I gave it a seven. a seven. Yeah, and I'm one. Yeah. I'm one point ahead of you. Yeah. Well, you guys are are um, seeing things eye to eye. Now, as you guys both know, I am going to duck out of this episode a little bit early yes. in this little recording yep. session. So if I just give you my little two cents on acting and my two cents on atmosphere, I'll let you guys uh, pleasantly conclude the conversation sure. at your own pace. Of course. So let's see. For acting, guys, Ipker's file. You know. Palmer is, is a good character and he's very well acted by Michael Caine. I don't think any of us are going to disagree that Caine's got the chops oh, absolutely here. Absolutely not. Uh, no. Dalby is fun to follow. Nigel Green is a, is a very convincing double. <laughs> he's really yeah, good. He is. Ross love, love a bit of Count Lippe coming out of Thunderball for this one. You know, um, I think this was filmed before Thunderball, wasn't it? It was. Yes. Thunderball, yes, yeah, it Thunderball was. premiered yeah. in December in Japan. Right. So I, Dolman is going to be doing this one before he does that one. Um, Jean, okay, here's my thing with Sue Lloyd. She's a bit stiff, man. Like, mm -hmm. they do not give her much agency. We've already discussed that. She's just kind of the bird, as uh, yeah. King calls yeah. her in the film. In <laughs> yeah. an otherwise birdless film, she's the only girl. Uh, yeah, there's a secretary, isn't there? What's her name? Uh, a the older bit. woman. What's Sally. her name? Oh, Alice, her. Right? Yeah, Alice, yeah, you go down the hall and up. She, yeah, yeah, the one she's with good. the cigarette. Frida Bamford. Yeah, yeah. yeah she's cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she, Jean, I've already talked about her. Yeah, she's all right. A bit stiff. Doesn't give it a good, sure. a great performance or Sue Lloyd, I don't think. Gordon Jackson was fun. I liked his kind of simple mannerisms, his jock, his friendliness. Too. Oh, he, he just, he just yeah. seemed like a friendly guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He hadn't been destroyed by his job yet. Like, and that leads me to think he is very much a low rung employee of the service. A bit too yeah, convivial. Exactly. You know what I mean? A bit too convivial. Yeah. Uh, Radcliffe. Okay. Okay, Radcliffe is good enough as the unsuspecting professor type, but it was a trope before he came around, and it's a trope after he leaves. He's he's just a hapless victim, so yeah. he's okay for what the story needs, but he's just plot service. There's nothing more to him. There's no there's no dynamic or no, no, no dimension to no. his character. Just before and after. Just before and in. after, yeah. Grant yeah. B., I guess the big one we can talk about if you want to, Gatliff, right? Mm -hmm. Frank Gatliff is his name? Yeah. Um, he was a bit of a dandy in this film. Like I was get, definitely getting vibes of kind of yeah, Deco Henderson and vibes of Blofeld, Charles Gray Blofeld here. Like he felt he felt a little bit miscast for me, and it's not because yeah. of the dandiness. It's because no, he had the believable look of a Nazi war criminal in his you know yeah. his face, but his performance was just a bit too foppish. Like to take yeah. him seriously as a big bad. Yeah. It felt like he was always wearing his heart on his sleeve and he wouldn't really do well in society to be a master villain because everywhere he goes, he looks like a master villain. Like, yeah, yeah. exactly. I don't know. I was thinking that too. Like, yeah, he's very ostentatious and, 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 and we look at him yeah. a lot. Like, there's, there's not really enough what's going on with you, you know, about him to me, to me. So, yeah, he was good, but he was, he was just a bit too into it as a baddie mm. and that made him stand apart very contrasting way from from Grantby I uh, sorry from the uh, Dolby and Ross who were very much of their job you know um I'm surprised he wasn't flushed out quicker because he seems to be very visible in the film as a bad guy um, yeah it's it's, it's 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 very clear and he even has like the kind of the big bald bo bodyguard as, as well <laughs> yeah um, mm -hmm. when getting killed in the police station somehow yeah, that uh, I didn't understand that. That was uh. <laughs> so I, I like the I like the acting in the film. It was good, um, 
but these these little things did take me down a bit. But it's certainly a solid film, well acted. I went for a seven mm-hmm. um, because I think Jean, a lot of time on the screen is given to her, and I found that stuff really dull. I didn't yeah. like that, and I, I had some problems with Grampy. So bringing it down to a mm-hmm. seven for me in the acting, and I'll just finish off with my atmosphere, boys. Yeah. Of course. Jeff, you've already mentioned the uh, the production and all of the Bond alumni involved. You got your Peter Hunt, your Ken Adam, your Wanstall, John Barry, and Harry Saltzman. And although the story is different, it is it is you know um, Kirkland Bond. I think as Josh would say, it's <laughs> Kirkland it's Kirk, Coffee. It's Kirkland <laughs> Bond, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it still has that feel. You can still feel the film has mm-hmm. those qualities about it because of oh, the yeah. crew behind it. So. Mm-hmm. What starts though, I gotta dis- I got I, I gotta disagree with you guys on all these camera angles and these thematic cuts because it begins and it impresses all of these canted angles and the camera work, but it grows to me a bit distracting. Like there is consistency in the approach. It's part of the film's fabric, I guess, and you connect it to the theme, right? What's going on? Why am I looking at it this way? Like, I, I, I feel upside down here in the scene. I'm confused. What's real? What's being disclosed? And so you get all these things over the shoulder, under the kneecap, behind the lights, fixture. Yeah. Like, you're getting yeah. all these weird things. There are a few balanced sequences from the director, but not very many. I think the DP and the director maybe... That it's ultimately Fury's decision, as Josh said. You know, the DP's just doing what what he's yeah. asked to do. But I would like for the film to have offered me a bit less jiggle jangle and a little okay. bit more balance for, you know, like the scenes that I enjoyed the most are the ones that I remember on balance. I, I appreciate the artistry and the decision for theme and camera to match up, but a little bit too much of it from for my like in this one. The supermarket scene, I loved it. I also yeah. loved the bandstand scene. Both of those are filmed yep. at neutral angles where you get to see the characters operating in their environments. And it, with, without the distraction of, I'm doing something now, think about why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like, I just <laughs> yeah, felt like, I, I, I got you. Know. Yeah. Was it yeah. the family uh, guy uh, thing? It insists upon itself? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I suppose that's it. John Barry's score, yeah. it's, it's really, really good without deconstructing yes. the cues. And I know we could do that if we have more time, but that combination of electric bass and guitar with those woodwinds is really, really pronounced in the score. And I love it. Yes, it's very yes. Bondian, but it's without, it's, it's without any derivation of that. It, Barry is doing something different here, even though he's using the same sort of tone, you know, the same sort of uh, colors. Um, yeah, that instrument we mentioned earlier, just got a wee note on it here, the cymbal arm. It's like a dulcimer, a twangy, mm-hmm. metallic, Hungarian instrument that carries the main mm-hmm. theme. It's got a mysterious vibe, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, it does. Um, I think what we're meant to imagine is like a piano string, but being played with kind of soft mallets, you know? And the musician sits down, negotiates the soundboard. Uh, that sound feel was used again for Quiller next year, even though Quiller was a bit more uh, flexitone manipulated, you know? Mm. A little bit different there. But I think I prefer, you know, I think I prefer the Ipcris theme to Quiller's theme. And if anybody hasn't seen the Quiller uh, Memorandum. I think I do too, actually. Or the soundtrack, go check it out. This was a Double O Chapman's choice a couple of years ago for Three Non Bonds. And it's an awesome film. Go check it out from 66 mm-hmm. with Peter Segal in it. Um, George Segal. George, George Segal. Thank you. George Peter Segal, Segal produced uh, Saved by the Bell. Also, go ahead and watch that <laughs> if you want to. Great show. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. Yep. It's all right. Yeah. But I do think I prefer the Chris theme, even though I'd probably give the Quiller score an edge 
for the way it's used in the picture. Here, I think there's less strategy employed to the positioning of the music and the filmmakers just relying more on vibe, like, okay, coffee scene, chill, let's go. Driving scene, chill, let's go. You know, whereas Quiller, it's a little bit more spotted to the action and, and the drama. But it's, hey, whatever, that, that's kind of by the by. I, I find though it's really tough to watch on Her Majesty's Secret Service now and all of the blind, the, the kind of mind control scenes by Blofeld without thinking about this film's soundtrack. Cause That's true. Yeah. We've got a lot of the same music going yeah. on here, you know, by Barry. So, yeah. Uh, I, I like London. The location shooting was great for me. I don't, I don't mind that it looks grotty or dirtier. It's believable no, for the character. I liked it. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought the atmosphere of the film is one of the more charming features that mm -hmm. helped me give the story a high score so mm. i'm not entirely sure that it's warranted i'm not entirely sure it's warranted but i went seven and a half for my atmosphere score even though the camera work i i grew to find it quite distracting um and a little bit detracting as well from what otherwise I might have bought into more, you know, I might have bought into some of these scenes more without that constant nagging, look at me, look at me, yeah. camera work. So I went, yeah, for a seven and a half overall, that's probably where I lost its marks, to be honest, but uh, eight, seven and seven and a half for me. Um, mm. So what does that bring me to? 14 and a half, 22 and a half out of 30. That, that's a solid score for- That's a, a solid score. A solid yeah. movie. Yeah. And just before I sign off, I think um, I should say to you that uh, you've had some good success, buddy, picking good films, you know, we've had the born identity. We've had yeah. the Ipcris file now Quiller memorandum and Ronin. So you've brought us four <laughs> seasons of bond by numbers. Uh, three I'm pretty good happy selections. about that. Good uh, selections. You're very welcome. And I, I'm, I am, I am uh, happy. Yeah. I, I'm going to put my feather in my own cap there, but yeah. So I'm happy with the Ipcris again. That was just kind of like, I'm trying to think of 60s, and I was like, it was in the back of my head. I'm like, yeah, you know, there's that one. And I couldn't think of the title, but I, I just knew it was Michael Caine with glasses, and it wasn't Alfie, but it was mm -hmm. kind of Spy. And I was like, which, oh, yeah, Ipcris. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, yeah. okay, okay. And then I was very happy. Uh, mm. So uh, anyways, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> well, hey, look, uh, thanks for this, guys. I'm, I'm going to nip away now early, but you yeah. guys enjoy yourselves. Have a good uh, rest of the episode, and I'll catch you back here soon for our next one. All right. All right. Oh, oh, before you go, do you want to tell the audience what movie you're doing? Kind no, I'll like let you. Know. I'll let you. I'll let you reveal it, Josh. You can reveal that okay. for audience just just as you sign off. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Scott has ducked out. Uh, he has some family priorities he has to take care of. So uh, Jeff and I are going to close the show with uh, the last two categories: um, mm -hmm. acting and atmosphere. So Jeff, did you want to uh, jump into the acting? Yeah. Uh, so acting with this film, I mean, the obviously I'm a big Michael Caine fan, and obviously uh, he he did a great job um, in this role. And the thing is, is that I find he played the character very well. He was just uh, like he played. I mean, not that I know any individuals like this character, but for someone who was ex army got thrown in jail because of, you know, um, from what the backstory was is that he was stealing and then they made an example of him. And then basically they took him back. So then he could do basically sp spy work, I guess, more or less. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and 
Michael Caine played that role very well because you could see he's very insolent. So it makes sense, and especially how he gets, quote unquote, that promotion. Uh, so I really, I, I again, I, I really enjoy Michael Caine. So I think this role, I could see why this role really catapulted him um, as a leading man at that time. Uh, I really liked him. Uh, it's very believable. I definitely enjoyed his on-screen presence uh, and and the character of uh, Harry Palmer. Yeah, he being, does have a presence on screen. Like I was saying, like it's almost like an attitude that he carries with him. Yeah, he's got an attitude. Language. He's got like a shit-eating grin because you could just see like I love the line where he's like, yes, uh, as a bit of humor there. And he's like, oh, yes, I'm going to miss that. And Dolby doesn't have my sense of humor. He's like, oh, yes, I will miss that, sir. <laughs> Every time he said "sir," it just sounded so insane. Yeah, it was just like, like yeah, it was so veiled sarcasm. Yeah, I know. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. I, and I kind of um, like how Ross, you know, how Ross went along with it too. At the same time, like yes, he did. He, he knew he picked the right man for the job. Yeah, <laughs> that's why it was so good at the end. Where he's like, "I picked you because you're an insolent bastard," basically. And yeah. it, it's like that was great. That honestly, that line at that point, uh, in, you know, in the uh, at, the, at the finale of the film, really, that was a very important line. I think that actually helped a lot. That yes. made me, I, just like the way Scott had described it, like it really kind of helped. Ties everything together. Uh, uh, yeah, all of the, exactly. All the, all the exactly. themes and so the storytelling. That makes and- a little more sense because you're like, why the hell would they give a guy who's an insulin prick this important job? <laughs> but it, but it's funny it too. If you think it about is. it, just going back to the storytelling part of things a little bit here, it's funny too because the only person who could resist like mind control yeah. would be someone like him, right? Like he's, yeah, he's insubordinate exactly. to the mind control. Because he's just like, are you telling me something? I'm not going to do it. So even even when being interrogated and with possible mind control, it's like, oh, are you telling me to that? Well, yeah. screw that. I'm not doing I, it. And just to return to the story part again, and that was one kind of another flaw. I don't know if you agree with me on it. Maybe I'm wrong, but like, wouldn't they have found the nails at the bot when they pulled them out of the, right? of the box? Wouldn't they have found the nails and knew that he was doing that? Or maybe they yeah. just, but then, but well, then you have the scene where it's like, yeah, he's resisting as much as he can. So maybe they're aware that he was doing those things, well, but then they, they should have been prepared. And did they want him to escape? Like, I was never a hundred percent sure on that. Well, that's, that's the other thing. Cause I thought maybe when they came in, they were like, that's when I guess maybe that was one of those things where it's just, um, without hitting, you know, the audience over the head with, uh, you know, uh, explanations is I thought they were going to be, well, they're obviously going to grab him. Cause if he dropped a bloody nail, beside him during the interrogation wouldn't they realize like okay well like you know he maybe he has something else that he's using like maybe he's trying to escape in the jail cell like something going on there but yeah i i, I see your point but then it plants the seed of him like shooting his hand right to re- in the final sequence so or yeah or he scraped his hand against something he either shot or scraped i wasn't quite sure what happened with the editing there um yeah uh, I think it was. I think he scraped it. He was because he he scraped it on the. Uh, it was the, on a the, desk, the, I think, right? Or like the projector, the fan, or like a, the the fan, oh, the yeah. projector thing, or it was yeah. something like that. Not the story. The other actors, like I, I'm not, I'm not very aware of what like what they've done as a whole, but I did, well, I, I did appreciate Green. Nigel. Green. No, Nigel Green. 
Yeah. Have you seen Zulu? He was in Zulu. Yes. And I then I realized, oh, they're both in Zulu. There you go. And yeah. I, I I forgot about that. Um, I think who again because I don't know too much of either of uh, the actors who played Ross and Green. Uh, sorry, um, Ross and Dalby. But yeah. I think they were appropriately cast for uh, those types of upper echelon asshole um commanding officers um and um you know and i like that I, gene i i appreciate it but there wasn't a whole lot there but i also like the fact that they didn't overtly sexualize her per se like yeah okay you know he had sex with her but it wasn't like like a bond like you know where she's dressed to kill kind of thing yeah I they didn't make her like that. a femme sedal or a seductress yeah per se. so what I yeah. liked about the acting for all the characters involved is that I felt that they all kind of stayed in their lane and they were all believable into their roles. There wasn't, yes. I, I feel there wasn't a lot of overacting. No, uh, and, I, I, and it was, I was saying, I think like minimalist, that's the way I, that's the min, way that's very, that I put and it. Exactly. And again, like Scott brought up a very good point. He said they're like the people that had the most uh, speaking time on camera was, you know, uh, Dolby and Ross for the characters, yeah. and and Michael Caine, yeah, it was very sparse. But every word he said, and also how he said it, spoke volumes compared to the people that actually had more speaking time on camera. I wonder if you go back and watch it, will you see sort of like almost a game, a mind game between Ross and Dolby in those scenes? Now that I you think, I about think it. so because I see. And that's why, because I, I watched this movie twice recently, because I watched it uh, a while ago, because we were planning to do this, you know, uh, this episode earlier on. So yeah. obviously I watched it again. And it's funny because um, I I have a, a better, like, I actually appreciated the film more this time than I did the first time. And it actually did change, because at first I was not feeling the angles. And I thought it was like, this is too weird, like it wasn't working for me. But I ended up, well, I'll get to that when I get to my atmosphere, but um I uh, I ended up appreciating it more and the characters more. And I thought um, that at first I wasn't really, I wasn't really liking Ross and Dolby, but then I appreciated how they, they worked, how they were sizing each other up and, and how also how um, Harry Palmer was, uh, how he was sort of used between the two of them. And it was, it was a neat, it was a neat, um, I, I can't even think of the right word here, but a, a neat dynamic. Sort of, um, dynamic. That's the word. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the the other smaller uh, character. Well, we we were talking about um, Grampy. Yeah, like he was weird. Like also, I mean, he did kind of give off like a you know sort of Nazi villain kind of thing. But also, I think it's funny where he he looks very British to me too. And but he walks around with like two huge. Uh, like bodyguards, which is not very stealthy. No. <laughs> um, but I mean, I liked him in the role, but there wasn't a lot going on there. I mean, he 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 played it well. Um, um, there's small roles here and there, but overall, uh, anyways, what I'm gonna say is my acting gave it seven, but I uh, I think most of the seven to me is um is is obviously Michael Caine. But I appreciate. But I think I, I think you, you did agree with me here too. Is like um, everyone did a good job, but it was just interesting because the roles are fairly realistic. So it 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 just felt sorted 
like normal humdrum, but that's why it worked. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's that minimalist, as I mentioned. It's that um, minimalist yes. everyday man sort yeah. of blue, sort blue of color, I guess. Blue collar bureaucrats working. Yeah, yeah, bureaucrats working, doing their job, sort of thing. Um, in terms of my view of the acting, so one thing that is really when you're reviewing films like these, like compared to you know like uh, like emotional dramas or like when you compare it to like melodramas or the big epics or or something like along those lines or you know the, the big heavy pieces this is you, you got to kind of look at the acting in the sense was the acting good for the genre that it takes place in right like yeah, you don't want to have point. overacting or overly melodramatic scenes in a movie like this because no. it doesn't it, it becomes less of a thriller and this is what exactly. this was this was a thriller and this was yes. direct this was directed as a thriller with its own yes. sort of like Euro cinema style that Fury was putting to it. Yes. Um, so in terms of the acting, I found the acting more than serviceable the majority yeah. of the way. I would even argue that everyone was like so uh, nuanced and like, as I said, like minimal dialogue. But what I liked about it was the actors put nuance in their performances, even through like yes. their body language, through like their yeah. gestures through all sorts of things that worked well with the narrative that they were telling. So Correct. it felt very believable in their roles because of that. That's something that, that just sold so well. Yeah, and, you're right. Uh, and I, I would say, yeah, Michael Caine delivers a good performance in this film. It's not an emotional, heavy performance, but no. you believe him in the role. You enjoy him in the role. He He's a fun character to follow around and see what he's going to do next sort of a thing because he's a shit disturber in his own way. Mm -hmm. So you kind of enjoy him in that way. And then you have uh, Nigel Green as Dalby and uh, Guy Dolman as uh, Ross. And those are very in interesting characters, like just how they were portrayed on screen. They have this dry wit to them that was felt mm. through the movie where it was almost borderline satirical. But how yep. they reacted to Palmer and how they play the roles in the story, like they were very convincing. And you get, yes. to see the the, you get to see kind of near the end the desperation. Dalby's so confident in what he's doing all the way through and then at the end, there's scenes too where like they, their acting catches you on. Like mm -hmm. when they did that bust and then it failed, but then they find the Ipcris file recording. Uh, Dolby's like he congratulates. He basically says, "I'll buy you lunch." You know, like yeah. So you, that's and that's like the actor. He sold that so well, but then the writing on top of that it pulls you in more into the story because is Ross the one that's on the inside yeah. and maybe it's Dolby? And yeah. Slowly you start to trust Dolby more, and then you know that Ross has. Courtney looking over Palmer. Yeah, so you're thinking that maybe that is that it is Ross. There's a lot of well placed red herrings because at, yes. at any given time you're like, well, this moment I think it's Dolby. Oh, uh, you know, a minute later maybe it's yeah. Ross. Uh, so it, it does keep you guessing in that in that sense. Yeah, I, I don't think it's really the actor's fault per se, but just how they appeared yeah. on the screen. Some of them were lacking. Like we're talking about Grampy. Also, I found like the American CIA agent. Like uh, I didn't like him. He, well, he was give he, he wasn't really given much of a personality other well, than I mean, I'm yeah, going to watch you yes, and I'm going to kill true. you. I mean, he yeah. added to the tenseness, but he was basically a sure. plot device in sense. Yeah, he was. And there's something yeah. about it that bothered me that like they chose to make the real scary CIA agent a black man. I just I I just found like that was that was a I guess that was a time I, I don't well. know, but I, I, it's cool that they're putting a, a black man like in in a role like that in 1965 and like in charge of like a CIA attache or something in London. I mean, that's a very good role, but 
the same time, like they also made him kind of scary, and then they killed him off so discreet, you know, so quickly as well, just to frame. So, yeah, yeah, I wanted a bit more out of that guy's performance. I think that could have been interesting. Um, Sue Lloyd as uh, Jean Courtney, she was all right. She, she did her best for what she was given, but yep. So overall, like I wanted to give a really high mark to acting, particularly because of Kane and Green and sure. Dolman. Um, but at the same time. I'm going to go for seven and a half out of 10 instead of like eight, which I, I wanted to, I, I felt like it feel I feel like it deserves an eight overall, but I just found there was just some defects in the storyline in terms of acting, mm -hmm. like especially with the Sue Lloyd scenes with Courtney, well, I, I just seven, found or seven and a half is a respectable uh, yeah. number for this. I mean, we're all around the same number here and it, you, what you've explained, it, it makes complete sense of why you rated it as you did. Yeah. So yeah, so I think seven and a half out of ten. That's my. It might. It might. It may. It it might be a little low, or it could be a little generous. I don't know. It depends on your take. But I'm gonna yeah. stick with my seven and a half out of yeah. ten. It it feels right for, for what for what I perceived of the acting in this film. Mm -hmm. That's fine. So I guess we can move on over to uh, atmosphere. Yes. Yes. Um, if you want to start that, or I can just continue from where I left, it's up to you. Yeah, go ahead. If you're if you're you're already you're mm -hmm. on the train. Uh, so this was definitely my highest mark of of the categories. Uh, for me, just going to go over like some of the stuff that we talked about, like the low angle shots, Dutch tilts. Despite filming on location, there is a concerted effort to make us feel confined. This through real interiors and Ken Adams' cramped sets that he builds, and also his non-cramped sets with the negative space. And in a way, like this feeling of confinement of like frame within a frame, and like you're seeing things through peepholes or someone's watching through something. Everyone is being watched, everyone is confined. There's like this uh paranoia feel throughout the you're being watched or controlled throughout the film. And this culminates with the actual cell that Palmer ends up in. And also the the box that he ends up in, and then you have like more examples of like that cramped style. You have the foreground obstructed by objects most of the time, and there's lots of shoulders, upper body shots taking over the frame. You don't even see the actor's face. Uh, the one shot I found really interesting was at the end when it gives you the oh, was, was he's holding the gun? Yeah, when he's holding the Luger, I, I guess it yeah. is. And yeah. it's like just how the, the view, the the point of view from like a shoulder. With his, with his gun holding, and then you have, like, on the right side, you have Ross, and then on the left, you have Dolby. And uh, that was an example of, like, the camera work and style that Fury was going for, working in tandem with, the with you know, the storytelling and not feeling a bit... To me, it was a, it was a good moment to be a little indulgent and in trying something new with those angles sure. that worked for the tenseness of the scene. You know what I mean? Because it allowed to, yeah, it allowed yeah. to put the, the two guys in the background... And then the body or the form of of Kane in the back in the foreground, and then in the middle mm -hmm. ground you had the pistol. So there was yep. that depth of field that you're talking about, right? So yeah. And I, I, I mean, I mean, I'm just thinking this now, but I was thinking that you know, left, right, you know, like heaven and hell, like you know, the angel devil kind of thing. Like, what am I choosing? What are we going to choose? And uh, and just you know, having having the gun and the it's almost it's a third person, but almost like first person. Uh, and it's it, it really sort of uh, makes the audience kind of be one with uh, with Harry and, and you know seeing like what do I choose here? Then you know they're all kind of like, well, he's the one. No, he's the one. It, it's a classic. 
you know, situation, but I thought it was well done and um, the way it was filmed uh, by Heller and obviously Fury um, yeah. pulling the strings, it was it was a well done scene and it was it was a it was a good um, final final scene. I thought it was a well used there. And the lighting we vary from naturalistic style to almost near chiaroscuro to for like I guess the emphasis of some themes, uh, some scenes. Sorry, uh, talked about the frame within frames, refracted image. Uh, locations are exterior edifices. Sorry, uh, so exterior locations we have edifices and offices. You feel the drab and routine of Palmer's workday life. Uh, he's trapped in a job he was assigned to, and it's unglamorous. And they did a good job of making you feel that certainly John Barry's score. It sets the mood. It may be a little too dramatic to underline the banality of Palmer's spycraft. Yet it knows there's more than meets the eye. So you feel it's a mysterious and it's unfolding. And there's this, I guess the strings of like the symbol and almost feel to me, almost like they're manipulative, like fingers moving and pulling on the cords, you know, like there's like a, a puppetry to it almost. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and then on top of that, you have the cinematography by Otto Heller. I feel that almost Heller seems like he's pulled between Saltzman and Fury in, in terms of of lining up the shots. Maybe he, he feels like what feels right for this shot or what feels right for this genre. So you get him doing really good, like, straight-laced scenes in terms of the camera work. But then you have the influence of Fury trying to put his kind of Euro style on there and his own influences and trying different things, experimenting. And... I do agree with Scott that did come to the point where they're going, okay, you're just sort of like sort of taking me out of the movie now. And I don't mind that as, as, as a viewer, me personally, but I can see why other people need that immersion. And sometimes what's he trying to do here, as opposed to like what's going on in the story, that's a bit of a conflict as a viewer. And I can see where how that can bother him. So for that, I took off like a point. Um, but I think everything else, including Peter Hunt's editing, intermixed with the cinematography, it just was created this great balance of mystery, of paranoia, of almost like illusion in a way. Uh, it made you question everything that you were viewing, like like Harry Palmer was up until the very end. And I think yep. it, that just worked overall um, with a bit of maybe a, a little less, uh, it would have done with a little more subtlety in some of the camera angles that... Um, Yep, that, that Fury chose. I think it could have used that, but overall, like I gave the atmosphere nine out of ten. That's, for, uh, that's a that's a decent mark. Uh, I actually did go up uh, a half point higher um, than what okay. I had originally listed. I'm putting the atmosphere eight. I'll be honest with you, a lot of the stuff you're mentioning, more or less, is where I'm going at. Yeah, with you uh, on that. Um, uh, yeah, like so with the camera angles, obviously I loved it, but I, yeah, I feel like it was almost like getting too much. Like, okay, like you're getting to put a little too much, like a little bit of spice, a little bit of hot sauce is okay, but you know, you put too much, it ruins the pot. Uh, and so at yeah. one point, yeah, like you're it, it's you're getting it, uh, you're getting inundated with that, which, like again, I appreciate it, and it does work, and it's you know, it's um, it's innovative, um, and. It, it's exciting, but then again, I feel like what you're saying is that it's a little too much. Like if they had toned it down a tiny bit, because unfortunately you're just getting numb to it at, at some point. Yes. So it's losing its um, the purpose at some points. But what I really did like is that it was showing you, especially in the mid-60s, it's just the beginning of suing in London, but it doesn't show you that. Like it's very cold. It, like you know it's London, but it just doesn't feel – like London, like the way you, a lot of people 
think about it maybe at this time and after it's like a different sort of view of London, it's, which is nice because it's also that style of film. Like it's, it's espionage. It's a, it's a, it's a weird, you know, like spy thriller. So it's showing you a very famous, very vibrant, uh, old historical capital city, but you're, it feels almost like you're in Europe. Obviously there's a point to that when they show the, uh, you know, the, the fake Albanian like prison, but they do a good job of just showing you, um, you know, the old style architecture and the buildings and the inside is just boring and this is offices, but this is where this stuff happens. And mm -hmm. so I appreciated that. Uh, obviously, I, I like I said, I, I've watched this a few times uh, now and I liked it more this time. But at first I was like, what's going on here? Like the angles are it's, it's taking me out of it. But. I watched it again. I appreciated it more. I really did like, um, you know, how how it was done and the avant-garde-ness of, of it at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think it, it does add to the film. Um, and it's it's unique for that. Like, it's uh, for the style of film. Like, you'd think a spy thriller wouldn't be this sort of, uh, like, you feel like you're watching some kind of, like, French New Wave or something at some point. Like, it, almost like a different genre than this. But yeah, it works or well. Even huh? like something like um, I was thinking of some even like some Italian cinema at the time too as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the atmosphere, I'm giving it an eight, um, which I was on the border between like seven, seven and a half. But I think it, it does a very good job of uh, the atmosphere, and obviously, like you know, the sets um, and John mm -hmm. Barry. Uh, the use of the symbolum uh, and uh, e even with that sort of that um, we were talking about the uh, the sound the use for the the actual um, oh my goodness the uh, for the 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 torture with the um, the actual Ipcris file which is like the actual like uh, you know the the sonic torture or whatever we want to call it. Uh, that was that was used well. That that helped with the atmosphere. Yeah. So yeah, sound deprivation. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, but uh, so my yeah my uh, my rating for it is eight, and I think that's uh, pretty good. I wouldn't want to go any higher than that. Um, but you know what? I I really did enjoy this film for what it was. Um, it's, me too. I guess it's too. Go ahead. No, I, I said me too. Oh, me too. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, uh, now, I haven't seen the other two films, but from what I've read, they were definitely not at the same level of, of this one. I think they were filmed at the same time, uh, the other two, or very shortly after I think there was like, I think like one was in the 70s, wasn't it? Oh, well, maybe. In the 70s? Anyways, this film was obviously a success considering it's it's on the BFI's list. It's number 59. Um, it's got mm -hmm. a pretty high, like I said, I think I said this earlier, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, even though I know that's very recent, uh, it's still giving it around about 98%, which is pretty good. Um, it, it, it inspired a lot of people. Uh, it was very, very highly uh, regarded, you know, obviously in, in the UK for the time. Um it uh, it catapulted uh, Michael Caine to to uh, stardom. Uh, that and Elfie, and, uh, as I was saying. And, and well, but but again, um, like they were yeah. saying, is the reason he got Elfie is because the director showed him an early clip of Ipcris, and he's like, okay, he's 
I'll take them kind of thing. Yeah, yeah nice. <laughs> so, nice. Um, but I, yeah, I, I really, I did enjoy the atmosphere. I enjoyed the scenes. I, I really enjoyed the cooking scenes. It just, it just, what I liked, again, it's refreshing is that it's just like a, a normal guy who's a spy, but you know, he's like, does he like being a spy? Not, not a whole, whole lot. He's just trying to make his way in the world. And if that's, this is his job, he wants to stay out of jail. He wants to do, he's good at his job, but he's, you know, he's just doing what he can and he likes to cook. Uh, it was just, it's just, uh, it's kind of a refreshing, uh, realistic spy tale. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I can't put any better than that. Absolutely. So besides ladybugs, the only other film I've seen of, of furies would have to be Superman for the quest for peace. And that was actually the first, that was one of the earliest Superman films I remembered because it had like the nuclear man guy. And I was a bit, and I was, I wasn't born when one and two, it had, come out so i only saw bits of that when i was young but i remember superman 4 specifically and there was like this nuclear man guy and or, or something it was a really it was a terrible movie but uh <laughs> sydney fury i don't think i saw it directed it yeah well there was a four That's right cool. so one and two yeah. are almost like back-to-back stories because they yeah. continue the same same story and then three was the richard Pryor weather one but uh oh yeah yeah i remember that one yeah but that did have the, the evil Superman in it, like the uh, the I guess Bizarro Superman. It was their it was right. it was their it was their take at Bizarro Superman, anyways. But right. and then he did Ladybugs, like you know, years later after that. So Quite I guess I mean, he didn't become the auteur that he wanted to be to become, and, <laughs> and maybe because he clashed with too many personalities and stuff, and just didn't. That's very possible. And the fact but, that you know, uh, like he he cried offset and went to ca- go on a bus and. Maybe his, his <laughs> sensibilities just weren't strong enough for that type of, you know, you got to fight well, your way in that, in that business, especially at that time. Well, it's, I mean, that's a long time from him, you know, breaking down and grabbing a bus to ladybugs or, or, or this, that's a long time. That's uh, what, like yeah, 20 right. years? <laughs> yeah. You have different perspectives over, over time, I suppose. Yeah, yeah exactly. And he's not the first director to be a diva either, so. Oh, no, 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 not at all, not at all. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it, but it is interesting for the, the type, like this type of film compared to the other, like I, it's quite polar opposites. If you look at this to Ladybug, it's interesting. I mean, directors, they, they're inspired to do different types of films here and there, but it yeah. is, it's quite interesting to think like, wow, Ipocris file, Ladybugs? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean... But, uh, so that said, uh, that pretty much does it for the Ipcris file yes. today. Um, we'll be returning to the world of non-bonds uh, very soon for a third offering of three non-bonds this season, which will be the last non-bond of, of our show, actually. And that's going to be Scott's coverage of Eye of the Needle with yeah. uh, Donald Sutherland uh, from the early 80s. So... It's a hard one to find, uh, but I managed to get it yes. off eBay. Um, I'll figure out when I'm going to watch that soon, and that's an episode that will be coming up shortly. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, that pretty much does it, I think, for Bond uh, by Numbers today. I believe it does. Uh, so, um, on behalf of Scott uh, and myself, to uh, say thank you for listening, and uh, stay tuned for our next episode. See you next time. Cheers.